Hebrews chapter 10, 1 to 18. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them in that portion of Scripture and join me in reading God's Word. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the form of those things itself, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually every year, make those who approach perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to, off, to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins, reminders of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, you have not desired sacrifices and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. You have not taken pleasure in whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin. Then I said, Behold, I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest's stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from, from the time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfect, perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, This is the covenant which I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their mind. He then says, and their sins and their lawlessness, lawless deeds I will no longer remember. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, an offering for sin is no longer required. Good morning. The title of today's message is Finished Work. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. The old was a preview, a shadow of the good things to come. The old system, a shadow, an image shown, if you will allow me to a certain extent, prophetic. And it was a pleasure preaching to us Genesis and Exodus. Therefore, Hebrews is a, an epistle that we could appreciate more. The Old Testament ceremonies was a shadow, but it is not the substance. In the same way, we are the substance and we have a shadow. The shadow is not really us, but seems to be like us. The Old Testament system would allow us to appreciate and, and understand the relevance of the sacrifices of Christ. They offered sacrifices every year because animal sacrifices could not effect perfect cleansing. And God was intentional that in the Old Testament, it reveals what sin was, but the law could not, could not save a soul from the penalty of sin. It would be Christ who could do that. They offered sacrifices every year because the animal sacrifices could not affect 
perfect cleansing. Otherwise, the sacrifices would stop. The animal sacrifices reminded the Jewish nation of their sins every year. It was a reminder, and we read that in verse 2. It was a reminder, not necessarily a cleansing. It was a reminder that they sinned year after year after year. But these sacrifices could not clear their conscience because the blood of animals cannot remove guilt. Only the blood of Christ can remove the guilt and can clear the conscience. Christ mentioned that God was not pleased with animal sacrifices, even though it was in the law. Christ came to fulfill God's will, which was to sacrifice himself. He offered himself once, and once was enough. Why? Because his unblemished life, his sinless life, made the one sacrifice effective for all eternity, for all time. It is effective in the sight of God's law. Thus Christ was the only worthy sacrifice because he was the only one without sin. The word became flesh. The second person of the Holy Trinity took the form of a man. He remained 100% God, yet he was also 100% man. It was not 50-50. It was 100 and 100. Now, why was this form necessary? Positionally, he was still God. Yet he voluntarily limited himself to the form of man. For what purpose? Christ had to identify with man. He became man to feel what we feel. So we, we, no one would say his sacrifice was without suffering. In fact, he said in Luke 24, Luke's version of the Great Commission, he said to his disciples, you are witnesses of these things. Witnesses of what things? That he suffered, he died, and resurrected. Then he commanded them, therefore, Luke 24, 47, this is Luke's version of the Great Commission, therefore, proclaim repentance. Repentance to every nation for the forgiveness of sins. And what repentance is a change of mind, a change of perspective, and a turning away from sin. And we know that Peter obeyed this. He preached repentance, repent and be baptized. We know that Paul, the apostle, as we see in Acts chapter 20, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders warning them that false teachers will come from, there, from among them. But he said to, the, to them, everywhere I went, both to Jews and Greeks, I proclaimed repentance and faith towards God. And in front of King Agrippa, he said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, and that everywhere he went and what he did was to proclaim repentance. Christ had to identify with man to represent man. He experienced the temptation of men, yet he did not sin, making him worthy to be sacrificed because there was no human that can represent man because the rule and the law was an innocent must die. In the Old Testament, the innocent animal who had nothing to do with the sins of the people must die. And God allowed that in the ceremonial law as a shadow of the coming of Christ. There was no one qualified to be an unblemished sacrifice 
for all who would believe in Christ. The author of Hebrews discussed lengthily that he is our high priest in heaven. Not according to the order of Aaron, not according to the blood of Levi, but appointed by God like this mysterious person Melchizedek. Like this mysterious person Melchizedek, no beginning, no ending. There was nothing written about his genealogy. And in those days, it was automatic to write your genealogy because they did not have last names. They have to say, the son of, the son of. And his sons were, that was how they identified a person belonging to a certain clan. But Christ was a high priest forever because God appointed him. And he is not like the earthly high priest who would sacrifice an animal for their own sins and the sins of the people. But Christ, having no sin, sacrificed himself for all who would believe. Take note, when we say the word believe, if you like quoting John 3.16, please extend it to verse 19. Remember, we are contextual students. Contextual students. I was in Manila a few weeks ago, and I had this fellow pastor. We played golf. And we were happy sharing and uh, to one another our studies. We exchanged notes. Why do we do that? Because we keep studying. Everybody keeps studying. There are some things he might have researched better than me, and I'm willing to listen. And in the same way, him as well. But where do we go back to test it? We go back to the Holy Scriptures. I remember Paul, he went to Berea and the Bereans, Bereans, Paul the Apostle, the learned teacher, the PhD, a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the law, an apostle of Christ, when he preached to the Bereans, what did the Bereans do? And Paul said, these were very honorable people. Why did he say that? Because they checked the word of God if Paul was accurate. And that's why I'm happy if you study to test every one of us in this church if we are accurate. And we welcome that. But please study by context. When you prove your point, please study well. It means you have tested, you have triangulated. What does that mean? You have looked at several sources. That's why I say to people with these study Bibles, I'm not against study Bibles. But study Bibles is a form of a very mini commentary, super mini. And what do you do? When we study, we look at the text, the context, the history, the literary context, and then what we first observe. Before we rely on these statements on the side. And once we begin studying these, it cannot just study one source. We study several scholars. Why? So that hopefully we can become more accurate. Why? As time goes on, more people study the history and research, and more findings come out. Therefore, somebody who spoke like Matthew Henry, I cannot rely on Matthew Henry so much anymore because he lived in a few hundred years ago. But do I read him? Yes. I read Spurgeon, I read Wesley, I read Edwards. I like reading the biographies of Whitfield, especially Brainerd. I like reading Owen, if some of you have the books of John Owen. A.W. Pink, well, why study all these? It's called triangulation. We compare, we test every statement. But if you would rely, oh, because Paul the Apostle said this, and the Berean said, we just accept it because that's Paul. That is dangerous. That's why there are many cults today, and there are many spin off of cults. And what's the reason? Christian dinamansha. 
You think Christians don't make mistakes? That's why Paul said to the Ephesian elders, from among you, false teachers will arise, savage wolves will arise, and oftentimes the savage wolf and the false teacher doesn't know he is a false teacher. That's why I want more of us to study. Amen? And we have encouraged some of you to take scholarships. And I, nobody, very few has approached, have approached me uh, to fund scholarships so that we can have a team here of serious students. How is that? Correcting one another, learning from one another, sharpening one another. And that's the culture we want in this church. Why? We are all submitted to the Holy Scriptures, not to any man, not to any board. It's first the Holy Scripture. If the board here does not submit to Scripture, we are not worthy. If a pastor here does not submit to the study of careful study of Scripture, he is not worthy. Well, the truth is nobody is. Therefore, we humble ourselves more. And what do we do? We become skeptical advocates. What does that mean? I'm an advocate of preaching God's word. But I'm a skeptic first to me and what I prepare for you. I'm first a skeptic of me. I'm also a skeptic of other preachers. But that doesn't mean I judge them and I hate them. No, I just want to filter everyone. But how do I filter Carefully within context. Not just because you can quote three verses, four verses from all over the place. Like I said, every time you quote one verse, you make sure you study the background of the whole book before you claim the meaning of a verse. Careful now. Now the author of Hebrews, studying from the Old to the New Testament, providing insights from Abraham to, to Melchizedek, to Moses, to Levi, to Aaron. Now he's saying to these Jewish believers, do not fall away. How could you? Let me warn you. It is terrifying to fall into the judgment of Christ. But the saving grace is amazing. And he mentioned that, well, to those who reject Christ publicly in those days in 8060, to 8070, which the book of Hebrews probably was written probably AD 65 or a little earlier, there was a falling away from the believers. Why? Number one, persecution was increasing. Social persecution was increasing. Physical persecution would be either coming or increasing already. Then the Jewish scholars arose and then there was a quiet rebellion that was being developed that would would go against Rome. So many of them convinced them to go back to Judaism, and some of them publicly denied Christ. And the author said, it is impossible to bring them back. They are apostates. Apostasy. The writer of Hebrews mentions in chapter 10, and the focus was the finished work of Christ. Let us read verses 8 to 10. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sacrificed, sanctified, sorry. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all time. Like we mentioned, once and for all time. We do not sacrifice Jesus again nor we, do we copy his sacrifice. We do not flagellate ourselves, thinking that if we inflict pain, we will become more holy. Thinking we deserve the pain, so instead of waiting for God to discipline us, we discipline ourselves. That is not the scriptural way. The scriptural way is to humble ourselves before the Lord, acknowledge our sin, to turn away from our sin and have faith 
in him. Christ's death cancels the old covenant so that the new covenant can take effect. In the new covenant, it was God's will to make all genuine believers holy through the sacrifice of Christ once and for all time. Every true believer will grow in holiness. What is holiness? Being set apart. The other word for holiness is sanctification. Being set apart for the purpose of God. You don't say my life has many purposes. No, your purpose is for God. For the glory of God. That is sanctification. We were set apart for a purpose. And that is to serve our Father in heaven. And Jesus Christ showed it. How he was obedient until death. Our purpose is not to make a living and survive this pandemic. That's part of the things we do. But we have a higher purpose. And that would be to follow Christ. To serve him. And I hope we have that in our consciousness. That all God's people must serve. All who claim to be children of God must serve God. As I require all my children to serve the family, and most of you here require that as well, you teach them that the same way the Father in heaven to all who claim to be true believers. We must serve. And we have studied within context that God remembers what? Your faithfulness and your service to one another. That was one of the sermons. And what best to express that than in small groups where we can serve and support one another and help one another. I'm an advocate of smaller groups. The same way we have a bigger group. Why? Church living like a church, a community, happens better in the smaller group. Why? In the bigger group, we don't know everybody here. How can we be personal to one another? As a growing community, it cannot happen. We may know a few, but once you begin part of a smaller group, and then you meet other groups, then slowly the community you live in, you realize that we are in a family. It's a family that fears God and loves God with all their heart. It is God's will to make all believers to be holy. The old was a pale shadow of the new. It prepared the coming of the new. But it was never the substance. The old system revealed sin and reminded them of their sin. Reminded. But it never cleansed their conscience. It was just a reminder. But the conscience was not clear. Why? Because it was still external. It was all external, but in Christ, it was internal. Remember, the promise of the new covenant was, God said, I will write my laws in their minds and hearts. And these laws are what we find the commands through Jesus Christ. In the epistles as well, as the disciples explained, as the writer of the, the epistles explained it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John showed us the life of Jesus Christ on earth. The book of Acts showed how the gospel spread through the power of the Holy Spirit. From the Jew to the Gentile and to different parts of the world. The epistles explained the gospel. Explained it carefully. That's why we study it carefully. And Revelation gives a view of their present, and their future in an apocalyptic manner. Why do we study? Because we cannot get the gospel wrong. If the gospel is wrong, everything is wrong. And as we studied last time in our training, Galatians 1.6, Paul gave a warning to those who would adjust the gospel. Let him be accursed. That's why I said for us, it's my concern in our practice here that we Go as close as possible, or to be exact, use the words that Christ used when he proclaimed. Use the words that the apostles used when they proclaimed. And the very instruction of Christ was proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He said to all the nations, proclaim this, therefore we must obey. 
we must obey. And we, what word should we use? Should we change the word repentance to something easier? Let's just come, come in front and I'll just pray with you and just repeat this prayer and magically they are saved? Oh, no, no, no. Jesus said, proclaim. I was talking to this fellow pastor. He's also a student. He's, uh, he's, he's in seminary. So I was just sharing to him, you know, when I learned in the 90s was proclaim the gospel as clearly and as exactly as it is. And I tried my best not to add anything to it. Then he said, oh, so, okay, okay. Okay, these are the words, not this. Uh, but then, um, how, what happens in the prayer? We know that the sinner's prayer doesn't save. It's really a genuine repentance and faith, which also comes from God, that saves. So, so how, do you, how do you lead them to prayer? Well, many in church, I did not lead to a prayer. I just tell them, repent. And every time we meet, they still haven't let go of their sin. I repeat it in a different manner. Turn away. Stop that. If you love Jesus, obey him. In different angles, every time I meet some people, that's what I keep doing until such time, boom. The repentance was there. The grace is evident. They let go of their sin. There's true repentance. Now, the New Testament has really warned about false believers. 26 of the 27 New Testament books concerned with themselves with what? Inaccurate teaching. If they fought for accuracy, we fight for accuracy today. If you don't want to fight for accuracy, then maybe we cannot get along. We will not get along. But the beauty of finding out accurately and giving us joy and obeying it, critiquing ourselves, and not only ourselves, but the present Christian culture, in which the disciples, the apostles, did that. They were skeptical of those teachings that were coming into the body of Christ. One of them was Gnosticism. And what was Gnosticism? There were different forms, but this was the prime false teaching in their time. What was this, the form here? The form here is, you can be a believer, yet your body is sinful, so it's okay to continue in sin. Anyway, you are in Christ because you claim to believe in him. That's why we even define what believing in Christ means. It means you truly believe in him and in his word and not believe in yourself. You believe in Christ more than you believe yourself. If you're not at that point, I don't think you are a believer. Him above all. There's a difference in the new covenant. What's the main difference? God would write his laws on minds and hearts. Because the old people, the Old Testament people could not obey. But here, what's the big difference? God himself will write it. So what happens if God writes his laws in our minds and hearts? Every word of God we hear, we hold on and we try to remember. And then what? We know it by heart. God puts it there. So what happens? So that we will have the desire to obey. It is like it was Jeremiah 31 promised that prophetically. But Ezekiel as well. When through Ezekiel God said, I will give you a new heart. What happens there? A true believer with a new heart will have new desires. What if you still have all desires and believe to be a Christian, you are a Gnostic. You're not a true believer. You're a modern day Gnostic. Paul told Timothy, fix the place, correct the false teaching. You will have struggles there, but don't worry. God knows those who are his. You see, Paul was telling Timothy, be proactive. Protect God's people, but don't worry. God's people will be protected. But do this still. Correct it still. So that's what we do. We correct false teaching. We study scripture. But if some do not believe, it is still God knows those who are his. 
To be sanctified is to be made holy, and to be made holy is to be set apart. Those who believe are made holy, set apart for his purpose. God's intents and purposes replace the intents and purposes of a person. That's why I share it to you. Before you even ask, Lord, what is your specific will for my life? Some of us think of that. And there's nothing wrong with thinking of that. There's nothing wrong in thinking about what's my calling. There's nothing wrong with thinking about what's my career. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, that cannot be your main purpose. All we do must be submitted to the throne of God in prayer. Every intent we have, we surrender. I said, before you, <laughs> and forgive me, my, my brothers and sisters who are singles, I know many of us are praying for God's will. And some of us who have a relationship are thinking, is this really God's will? If you're thinking that way, good. It's healthy to doubt. While it's early. But before you even think of that, God's intents and purposes, there are many things that are already revealed. Therefore, we pursue what is already revealed first before we pursue the specifics even of our lives. What is revealed, we must proclaim repentance. We must bear witness of the witness of the apostles that he suffered, died, and resurrected. We have to proclaim there is forgiveness. We have to make disciples of all nations. We have to build a community of believers serving one another so that we may grow and mature. And Ephesians for the growth and maturity there, one is character that we may grow in the truth, speaking in love. Take note the combination. The truth, speaking in love. And when they said truth, it's not just honesty. It is doctrinal truth saying, so that we will not be easily blown away by every wind of doctrine. A recently entered in Naga City was this doctrine. You only need to repent once. You don't need to repent anymore. Once you sin, just go on. Wow. From the reformers until now, such many scholars have said, wow, that repentance is a lifestyle. That first Gen 1, 9, to confess means to admit. It's a different form of saying, being broken before God and acknowledging your sin. They're saying that that is not repentance. And chapter 1 of First John is, is not for the believer. Only chapter 2 onward is for the believer. Oh, wow. And what about the, the churches in Revelations? They were called to repent. And these were the churches in Revelations. So that is just one that keeps coming in and many easily believe, easily thrown by every wind of doctrine. Another one would be well, it is true, but some create a spin of it that is distasteful. Some claim to be God's prophets for these days. I wonder why none of these saw the pandemic happening and warning us. And then there were some videos who claimed, oh, look, he, he claimed it before. And some investigated it. No, it was after. <laughs> so, but they video it and they claim that way. So, oh my. So I said, one thing sure in the last days was more false teachers and more false prophets will arise. So I want us to be skeptical advocates of the word, but skeptical with every teacher. Don't think it's a sin. If your skepticism is not based on the study of context of the word, then please be warned. You're just a skeptic because that's your, <laughs> that's your character. You have the gift of suspicion. And you have the gift of, you know, there's this joke, please don't try to be the Holy Spirit. But what can we do? If sin is in front of us, what can we do? We say, I'm a sinner too. And every time I sin, I want somebody to correct me. I'd like to correct you. 
humbly correcting one another. But if we're offended with that, I am concerned because the fool is offended when he is corrected. Only the fool is offended when he's corrected. We are sanctified, and to be sanctified, you cannot separate the Word of God and the purpose of God in our lives. To be sanctified is to be set apart as holy. The gospel is holy. We protect it. Our lives must be holy. If we sin, we come to the Lord for cleansing through repentance and confession. Let's look at the finished work. Let's read verses 11 to 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Praise be to the Lord. What does that mean? If you're a true believer, you will pursue holiness. But if ever you do sin, you, he will forgive you. And that is our assurance. But if you're not a true believer, you're a fake. You never had forgiveness from the start. How do you know you're real? He writes the laws in your mind and heart. There is that desire. Suddenly you hate the sins you were doing. I'm not saying you'll be perfect, but you hate it. And you're dis uncomfortable with it if ever you commit it. There's now that discomfort because you want to pursue Christ. The old system, the priest worked in the tabernacle day after day offering sacrifices that could not take away sin. Take note. The Old Testament sacrifice could not take away sin, but it just reminded them that they were sinners. But also giving them a picture of what it means. If you sin, what must happen? An innocent must die. And that was a foreshadowing of Christ. But Christ offered himself once for all. He then sat at God's right hand because his work was done, waiting for his enemies to be submitted. In the old covenant, in the tabernacle, there were no chairs in the holy place and most holy place. No chairs. The priests could not sit. Their work was continuous. Now, the author was saying, in the heavenly tabernacle, Christ offered once, not year after year. He stopped working because the one sacrifice he made was sufficient. So he no longer stands and he sat down at the right hand. Take note, this analogy is beautiful in the sense that he is high priest, but he is also sovereign. And if you look at the tabernacle, as we mentioned, the mercy seat, that's why it's called a seat. The Ark of the Covenant, the law was inside the Ark, and it was called a seat. I remember one youth asking me, uh, where's the seat? <laughs> it didn't look like a seat. Well, God is a spirit, okay? But what does that reflect? It reflected the thrones of those times. The throne of kings in those times have a seat and beneath was the law, the law of their nation. Whatever tribe there were, the law was underneath. So it was a picture. The mercy seat was a picture of the throne, the, thro the, the chair, the throne. But of course, in the heavenly throne, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. The tabernacle provided no seats. The priests could not sit, but Christ sat down. And one day, all of Christ's enemies will bow down. Now, what does this mean that he sits, okay, until his enemies are made a footstool? The most obvious we can think of here is until his enemies are judged. Judged and pay the penalty of sin in the fiery lake of fire. There's this philosophic, philosophical question, if God is a loving God, why would he send anyone to hell? Please, when you answer that, attack the question. The question is wrong. You assume he's only loving. You forgot he was a just, he is a just God. So if you think God is both loving and just, 
if a judge is just, he will fulfill the law. He is both loving and just. Why will some go to hell? That will, if he decides, that will glorify him. Yes, and it shows who he is. Some were asking, asking me, how, how, can, uh, how is it possible that why wouldn't just God take away the suffering? Take away all the hate? So for me, the, the, the question was philosophical. Not necessarily biblical. So how do you answer that? Well, would you really know comfort unless you experience discomfort? Would you? Would you experience what is cool if you have not experienced what is hot? God teaches us in this world opposites. The very creation of the earth dealt with opposites. The sky and the land. The earth and the sky, the land and the sea. The sea creatures and the animal creatures. The small plants and the big plants, man and woman. Would you really know, know true love if you never experienced hate? God is sovereign, we trust his will. Third point, better promises. The author repeated key promises in the new covenant. God would put his laws in the hearts of his covenant people. Furthermore, he would forgive them and would remember their sins no more. Now, the author repeated this. <laughs> remember, he mentioned this already. He repeated it, why it is very important. Verse 15 to 18, let's read. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying... This is the covenant which I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their mind. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will no longer remember. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, an offering for sin is no longer required. Christ died. It's a perfect sacrifice. It's a finished work. Therefore, the promises are in effect right now. The promises are in effect. That's why many of us have experienced this law being written in our minds and hearts. Some of you remember somehow a turning point in your lives that suddenly your desires changed. The way you moved, you acted, you, you, the way you spoke changed. Some of us in a quick Turn around a few moments. Some of us, we don't know when. It took, uh, uh, it took time, maybe months or years. But somewhere along that line, there was a turning point. And this is what we pray for, for every one of us. As the writer of Hebrews did not believe that everyone who joined the community were true believers. So I believe the same thing. But yet we pursue, we pray, we fight for it, we preach at it, about it, I mean... And hoping that people would truly believe and God would write his laws in the minds and hearts of God's people. God imprints his commands on the hearts and minds and those who genuinely believe. To those who genuinely believe. In the old it was conditional. The old covenant, if you obey you will be my people. In the new, I'll write my law so you will obey. I'll write my law in you. If God imprints his commands in mind and heart, his people would remember and put their hearts into it to obey. Yes, if it's in our minds and hearts, we want to obey. Christ and the word of God is no longer like, if I have time, I will serve him. If I have time, I will study his word. That's no longer the case. It's now him and him alone. And everything else is because of him. Application, glorify God in mind and heart. Through his death, he freed believers from traditions that merely addressed the external. Christ cleared our guilt and set us apart for the glory of God. Thus, let us glorify God in our minds, hearts, words, and actions. God gives every believer the hunger and thirst for his word. Thus, let us continuously study and meditate on God's word. Let us learn it by heart, 
by cherishing the word of God above all and by obeying from the heart. Number two, believe in the finished work of Christ. No need to sacrifice animals for our sins because Christ finished his work once and for all time. No need to convert to Judaism or any religion. What we need is to repent of our sins and believe in his finished work. The external ceremonies of Judaism were a picture. It was a picture of sin killing innocent animals. The old system, it's a picture of sin killing the animals. Yet it was limited like all religions. The old system was limited. Only Christ offered his life for the forgiveness of the guilty. And not only forgiveness, it also clears the conscience. He removes the guilt. It, there's a renewal of hearts. Thus let us celebrate the finished work of Christ. I hope when every time you pray and thank the Lord, you thank him for his finished work. Otherwise, we would be sacrificing animals and all the sheep in my farm would be dead by now because of so much sins that we commit. And I have nothing to eat. But through the death of Christ, not the blood of animals, but by his blood, the blood of animals and the blood of Christ are different. It is potent. The blood of Christ is potent to clear our conscience. And every time we sin, forgiveness. But that doesn't mean we want to sin. You see, there's a difference between the antinomian. The antinomian, one of the false teachings that Paul was fighting was similar to, to a form of Gnosticism where the body is sinful or because of grace we can sin. It's a license. No, it's not a license. True believers will not feel a license to sin. True believers will hate sin in their lives and we will ask for God's forgiveness. But if ever they do sin, they know that God forgives. Why? The blood is sufficient for all the sins we will ever commit, but that doesn't mean you are excused to sin. A true believer will not chase sin. Sin might chase a true believer, but the true believer does not chase after sin. But the non-believer who pretends to be a Christian has not been changed within the heart, pursues sin, but on the exterior looks like a believer. They also say the words, praise the Lord. They say, thank you, Lord. Oh, God is good. They say the same words. They may read the Bible, but within them, it's not there. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say, let us sincerely come to Christ. So I say to us, let us sincerely do so. Third, live a life set apart. My life is not my own. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me or through me as well. So what do we do? We want the Christ life to live through us every day. By God's will and through faith in Christ, let us live out the laws that God put in our hearts. By his grace, let us live holy lives in Christ by obeying his commands. Christ died for our sanctification. Take note. Christ died to set us apart, to make us a people for God, to set us apart for a special purpose. He died for that. Thus, we should live our lives dedicated to his purpose, not our own. Everything we think, say, and do should be for his glory. If ever we sin, we come humbly before him to confess our sin. Our confidence in his forgiveness rests in the perfect sacrifice he made once and for all. If you have not repented of your sins, I proclaim to you, repent for the forgiveness of sins. If you have, then you have started the journey to sanctification, the journey of becoming holier every day. And as you become more obedient, the less proud you are of your morality the more you see that you are not qualified, that only the grace of Christ 
can make you obey. You understand that every day if you understand the sanctification in Christ. And let us celebrate the finished work. Allow me to share to you a piece of poetry inspired by Hebrews 10, 1 to 18. Finished work. Christ sanctified us through his death, followed God's will till his last breath, rose from the dead in victory, confirmed by those in history. His work was done in Calvary, freed us from sin and slavery. At God's right hand now sits the Son, once and for all his work is done. One day he'll judge his enemies, everyone through the centuries. They will bow and beg for mercy, begging for all eternity. Thus, let us believe in his work, repent of all the sins that lurk, receive God's forgiveness through faith, blemished souls the spirit shall bathe. God's commands in our hearts and minds, by his grace he removes the blinds. Now our thoughts and our emotions obey in joyful explosions. Let us all rise, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. To you be the glory. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father and the fellowship of his spirit be with you all. God's people say, Amen. God bless you. Good morning.